Well, the summer series, if you haven't picked it up yet, is called Tests of Faith. And we took that phrase from the book of James, in James chapter 1, really James' first command, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Our James is kind of preparing us to understand how are we to approach the trials that are going to come our way. And there's a, we are to have a certain mindset. For you know something. For you know these trials are doing something. They're producing something in our lives. Producing something good, steadfastness that makes us complete. Lacking nothing. So be ready. Really. We should be living our lives being ready for the trials that come. For the tests that come our way. And James says the, the trials are various. In other words, there's different kinds of trials that are going to come our way. Some of these trials we've looked at already. Um, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the life of Joseph. And this was kind of a, a long-lasting trial of life. And some trials are that way. They're, they're personal. They're long. Joseph, he was sold into slavery as a young man. Years of hardship and pain and suffering and prison and rejection and, and betrayal. Physical pain and suffering. Jeremy, with Jeremy, we looked at uh, the book of, of Habakkuk last week. And that's also kind of a long-lasting trial. Like the nation is going in the wrong direction. It's been going this way for decades. And then you find out God's raising up a, a nation more wicked than you to, to, to bring judgment. It's like it's just a day-to-day, year-after-year struggle. How to walk through that test of faith. These are our tests of endurance that we've been looking at, really. And lots of tests are that way. You find out you have a permanent loss of health. That's a test that's going to last a long time. Maybe you have lingering doubts in your mind. And they were there 10 years ago and you're still struggling with those today. They're still there. Deep pain born out of great abuses. But there's also a different kind of test that might come our way. A test that comes as a surprise, like a test that comes in a flash. And it requires you to respond in some way quickly. That are sudden for a moment of testing. You have to make a decision. And you don't have time to pray about it for weeks or even have hours of contemplation. All right, there's a difference in having to prepare yourself for a trial that you know what's coming. Perhaps you have cancer and you've, you've been through some treatments and you have another one coming. Excuse me. You have another round coming and you know what it's, you know, you're anticipating what it's going to be like and you're praying for it and people are praying for you. You have a, a child who's in rebellion. Just kind of just like it's, it's always lingering there under the surface. You're always having to trust the Lord. And then there's a test that comes by surprise that requires you in a moment to decide how you're going to respond. Like, are you going to have faith in that moment? Or are you going to perhaps have fear that causes you to retreat? Are you going to have faith? Are you going to kind of succumb to the temptation? Some of you have read the book Tortured for Christ. It speaks about what it was like living under 
as a Christian in communism, written by a pastor from Romania. And he, if you've read the book, you probably remember this story. I'm just going to read a brief story from the book. I mean, it was, it was hard to live under communism, harder than we would understand. Sometimes there were those moments, though, where a decision came in I, and people had to decide, what am I going to do right now when I'm faced with this trial, this temptation? So here's what, here's the story. It says, one of our workers was a young girl in the underground church. The communist police discovered that she secretly spread gospels and taught children about Christ. So they decided to arrest her. But to make, the, to make the arrest more agonizing and as painful as they could, they decided to delay her arrest for a few weeks until the day she was to be married. On her wedding day, the girl was dressed as a bride, the most wonderful, joyous day in a girl's life. Suddenly, the door was pushed open and the secret police rushed in. When the bride saw the secret police, and I'll just stop there for a second, Here she was, in this moment, not anticipating that was going to happen. And she's going to have a decision to make if they're coming for her. And she knows what that decision means. She knows that she could just reject Christ and they would have accomplished their goal and perhaps they'd walk away. Or she would remain faithful, endure that trial, and then she knows what that means. So they swing open the door, she sees them, and then this is, he goes on to say this. When the bride saw the secret police, she held out her arms toward them to be handcuffed. They roughly put on the manacles on her wrists. She looked toward her beloved, then kissed the chains and said, I thank my heavenly bridegroom for this jewel that he has presented to me on my marriage day. I thank him that I am worthy to suffer for him. She was dragged off with weeping Christians and a weeping bridegroom left behind. They knew what happens to young Christian girls in the hands of communist guards. After five years, she was released, a destroyed and broken woman looking 30 years older. Her bridegroom had waited for her. She said that it was the least she could do for her Christ. And then he says, such beautiful Christians are in the underground church. Like we, we barely have categories for thinking about moments like that. Now for us, the stakes may not be that high. All right? They're not that high. But in principle, we face moments like that. Someone walks in the door or we face a moment, a moment of decision that we weren't anticipating, and all of a sudden we're called to make a decision. And in those moments, at some level there might be a threat. There might be a danger. And we're called to decide, are we going to rest in Christ? Or will we cause our fear to cause us to stumble? Or will we surrender to some temptation? To hold on to something? To give in to something? So the question I want us to ask this morning as we begin, we're going to look in the, in, the, in the book of Joshua this morning, but I want you to ask this question as we begin is, how can we be ready to make a decision in faith in the sudden moment of testing when it comes? 
I'll phrase it a little bit differently. How can we be prepared in, the mom- in a moment's notice to pass the tests of faith that surprise us? How can we be prepared in a moment's notice to pass the tests of faith that surprise us? Like one of those moments we often think of in the Bible where that happened was with Peter, right? Peter endured. He was walking with the Lord. He went through some you know, hardships in following Jesus. And, and then the night of Jesus' betrayal, when things start to intense, uh, become more intense, and then he's in this courtyard, and a young girl says to him, you're with the Nazarene Jesus. And how does he endure that test? He fails. Like, in that moment, he was not ready for that question from a little girl, and he caved. Our story this morning is in uh, Joshua chapter 2. You can turn there. This is not the story of a someone who grew up around the people of God, who knew the commandments of God, had been memorizing the law. This was not the story of Paul and his tests of faith, of walking faithfully with the Lord. This is the story of a pagan woman who has no history of walking with God nor nor testimony of faithful service. Yet without those advantages, when faced with a life and death decision in a moment's notice, she acts in faith. It's the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua. The story of a prostitute woman who lived in the city of Jericho in the land of Canaan about 3,400 years ago. And her test of faith was not a test of endurance. It was a test of a moment. At least that's the the, the example we have here in the story of her life. In a moment's notice, she had to make a decision. So it's a test case for us to prepare us for moments like this. Let me turn there myself. And I'll read Joshua, most of chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as, as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you. Who entered your house, for they have come to search out, all, search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flask that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up uh, to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, 
and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shehan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then... When the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours, that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house His blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. We'll stop there. So I want us to kind of enter the story for a moment as much as we can try to understand what it was like to live in this moment. So we we know the nation of Israel is on the east side of the Jordan River. And they've been kind of at the moment where they're pursuing and about to cross the the river into the land to receive what God has promised to them. You've got the Dead Sea, you've got the north of the Dead Sea, you've got the city of Jericho, you've got the, the, the plain of Moab, and you've got mountains on each side. The nation of Israel is on the east side of this valley in, in, into, the, into the mountains a bit, and they're visible, and they're, to, they're visible to Jericho, all right? And, and Jericho knows, and, and, and Joshua's gathered the people around, said we're preparing to go in to take the land. And so these two spies are, are sent over. And so these spies are trying to be discreet. They don't want to be caught, of course, they're spies. And and so they're wandering, you know, sneaking into the city at some point during the day, or perhaps at night, trying not to be obvious, trying to avoid detention, uh, detection, trying to, they probably not even to speak to anyone, lest their accent be heard. Now, this is not like sneaking into Jackson, all right? This is like... The city of Jericho is about 10 acres in size. So if you know the church property, it's, it's about the size of the church property. And there's probably maybe up to 2,000 people living in that area. So this, is, this is like tight quarters. And this, the city is on high alert. 
Because they know, they see the people of Israel. They're a city of a few thousand people, and they see millions of people across the river. And they know those people are about to invade. And they, in fact, they know quite a bit about them. And so the city is on high alert. The word of Israel, that Israel's on their way, has spread. And Jericho knows that they are the one stop that they need to cross through to get into the hills. The people of Jericho are scared, and rightly so. They're watching, and they recognize the stakes are high. And these two spies enter into the city and ultimately into the home of this woman, Rahab. Verse 1 tells us that she's a prostitute. So these spies are, are, are likely seeking a place. Where can we go to learn what we need to know about this city where it wouldn't be a, as noticeable if we're going in and out? So perhaps that's what, that's what leads them there. They're hoping to be in, undetected. But verse 2 tells us that their hopes of not being noticed, well, the plan fails. They are noticed. And not only are they noticed, but they're noticed as going into the house of Rahab. So someone saw them and someone watched them. And so they go into Rahab's home. So it's only a matter of time at this point where there's going to be a knock at the door. From people in the city saying, we saw the men of the Israelites go into your house. So then the test arises. That's the situation. Now the test comes up. Now the We could be looking at the faith of those spies, but the Bible is always drawing our attention to this story and wanting us to look at this woman, Rahab, and see how she responds in this moment. So think about her, what what it's like to be her. Likely a single woman, living in a godless culture, making her livelihood by selling herself to strangers. She feels the tension of the city and the fear. She recognizes that there's just kind of like this sitting duck in the way of this Massive people who have been having victories up to this point, and they're going to cross over, and they're going to take out her city. And then something very uninvited and unexpected happens. These two men show up at her door. At first, she doesn't realize who they are, but at some point, there's a realization, these men are not from here. Not only are they not from here, they're from that nation across the river. Again, it's, it's good that sometimes kind of, as much as we're able to, like, imagine the moment. Like, imagine the moment of, like, she realizes who they are, and they realize that she realizes who they are. Okay? Like, like this is a dangerous moment. Like, what's going to happen? Is she going to scream? Is she going to call for help? Is she going to talk to them? Is she going to turn them in? There's a lot going on right now in that tense moment in that lady's house. It wasn't a simple test. So there's a conversation that takes place, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But her decision in that moment will decide the course of her life. Will she side and remain loyal with all that she has known? Her city, her culture, the authorities in her city, everything that she grew up with? Or will she side with these foreign people and follow a God that she doesn't, she knows some about, but doesn't know, doesn't know that much about? 
Can you, like, can you feel that that's a hard decision to make? There's a lot of danger in that decision, either way. And life is made up of those decisions. Like, some decisions are big. We look back at, you know, maybe even some of your own ancestors, and they've, you know, they fled persecution somewhere. We, we read about the Christians suffering under communism today, and like, some decisions are major, But some decisions are just small. How am I going to respond to this? I want to talk to moms and dads for a minute. Don't ever forget that your children are watching to see how you respond to the tests of faith in your life. Like, they hear... Words of scripture that say we're to live by faith and not by sight. And the prime example of how that, what that looks like is going to be you. Or they're going to read James and, and hear, like, we're supposed to count it all joy when, you, when we face various trials. And they're going to learn how does one face trials by seeing how mom and dad do it. If they don't see it, it may end up they grow up thinking like, well, I guess it was kind of a sham. Because at the end of the day, mom and dad, they didn't count it all joy. They played it safe every single time. They never took a risk for the Lord. So just moms and dads remember that. Not only ought to do it because God calls us to it, but know that I hope our children grow up and say, you know what, I did see my mom and dad take steps of faith. I saw them in that moment when they could have gone either way, whether it be the, the, the major trials of endurance or just those, those small moments that happen regularly. And they decided to trust rather than give in. Trust rather than give in to fear. Rahab had to trust the God she had known and the gods of her community, or trust in the God of the people across the river. And when she woke up that morning, she had no idea that would be the decision she'd be making that day. But that, that, that test would determine her life's direction and eternal destiny. So we come to the decision she had to make in verse 3. So at some point, the, the, the men of the city arrive at her door, and they say, bring out the men who have come to you, and who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. And so we know what she does, right? She knew that they were coming, so the men had been hid. And she tells the king's men that they have already left her house. She lies. She says she doesn't know where they're from. They left before dark. She doesn't know where they went. And if they hurry, maybe they'll be able to go find them. It's an interesting question to talk about the fact that she lied here, but the Bible never actually makes an issue of it. It actually draws our attention to her faith. So that's what we will focus on this morning. But again, if I put myself in that moment, I can imagine her trembling at that conversation, right? Like this is a, a treasonous moment. If she says, no, they're not here, they fled, why don't you go find them? 
and they search her house and they find them, well, her, her penalty may be the same as if they had found her. Here she is trembling, recognizing what is at stake, and she's willing to draw a line, a clear line in the sand in her own mind that she is now siding with the people of Israel. She's now siding with these spies. In that moment, she's shifting her allegiance from all that she has known, all that she grew up with, and even with the little knowledge that she had, she wanted to be on the side of these, this nation that is about to enter the land. Some of you have experienced some taste of that. You maybe get, became a Christian maybe later in life, and, and, and you knew what it felt like to, to switch your allegiance. Like all of a sudden, your life changed, and, and, and people are like, what's going on with you? Like, I'm not sure this is a good thing. Some of us don't know that because we kind of grew up in a Christian environment. Others of us know what it's like to have your family say, I don't think the stuff you're doing with the whole church thing is a good idea. And you're having to actually draw that line in the sand and say, actually, I've come to know Jesus. And I have switched my allegiance. I, was, uh, I got a call from my sister a couple weeks ago. And she was so excited to tell me the story of this uh, young man that came to her church. And uh, so she's sitting down, and she, you know, after church, like we all should do, see somebody we don't know, she turned around and said, hey, I'm Kristen, what's your name? And began to talk to him. And soon discovers that, like, this guy's never been to church before. She's like, well, what's your story? And his story was basically, he, he'd been listening to, like, conservative, not Christian, just, like, conservative political podcasts. And, like, just, but that was, like, completely foreign to his background. Like, that was not him. That is not the family he came from. This would have been, like, you don't listen to those people kind of stuff. So he was rebelling and listening to conservative podcasts, you know. But after doing that, he began to, what, was what they said or whatever, he, he's like, I need to know something about church. So he typed in, Biblical church, that's literally what he typed in, biblical church. And her church came up, and so he went, that, he went to that one. And, um, and it's one of those encounters where you're just like, he's like, so who's Jesus? And what is faith? And what is salvation? Like, like the, the prayer, you're, you're praying your neighbor comes over and asks you all those questions someday, you know? Like, he just shows up. But what was, what's been interesting is, as uh, my sister's gotten to know this, young man, is um, just found out he was living in his car. And not because, like, he didn't... It came to the point where he realized he couldn't be in the environment he was in. He had to leave where he had been. He had to leave... I'm not saying he abandoned his family, but, like, his family is hostile to what's going on, and he had to kind of get himself out of that. And so... That decision isn't always as maybe dramatic as that guy's story, but the principle is the same. That the, when we come, when we walk by faith, when we surrender and we, we, we believe in God, we believe in Christ, we put our trust in Him, it is a shift of allegiance. For Rahab, this was not just the risk of an awkward conversation, it was the risk of her life. Every decision to follow Christ is a decision of faith 
that switches allegiances. Turning from sin, from self-righteousness, from self to surrender to a new righteousness that comes by faith, to a new identity that we have in Christ, to, to a new family. Every salvation is a choice between God, the God of this world, and Jesus. In every Christian, it's always a radical line where we're always, we're choosing a new team, we're choosing a new Savior, we're choosing a new um, hope, we're choosing a new sovereign over our life. Jesus says in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, there's, there's no way to say it more starkly than Jesus does. That to follow him is a, is a hundred percent pledge of allegiance. It says, Jesus, I want to go where, I will go wherever you ask me to go. I will no longer live for preserving myself and the things that I can have, the things that I know, the things that bring me comfort. And I will pledge my allegiance to you. And if you're one who rides the fence on this, some of you may ride the fence like at the level of salvation. You're like, I'm not quite sure I want to be that kind of Christian. I like the, I'm more comfortable with the, the one who gets to compromise most of the time. I love Jesus, like I love the heaven part of Jesus. But I like to, I like to, hold, on my, I like to hold on to both things. The gods of this world and myself and the things that Jesus says. I encourage you to surrender because not only is God sovereign, but He's good. And He calls you. And He receives you when you come. And He's better. Rahab was such a woman. She was willing to lose all that she had known to gain what was promised because what was promised to her in these and the God of Israel was greater than anything that was promised to her in that city. And she recognized that. So her faith is on display. So two times in the New Testament, the Bible draws our attention to this woman, particularly in what she does here in this scenario. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, but she had give, because she had given friendly welcome to the spies. James does a similar thing where he says this, And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The New Testament is wanting us to look at this woman and say, what did she do and why did she do it? And she is an example that we might follow. So the question becomes, what is her faith in? What's she trusting in? Why is she making this decision? Because to say someone has faith without defining it is really a meaningless statement. Faith in itself is not good. Just faith in general. You can have faith in the wrong thing. Psalm 20 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall... But we rise and stand upright. 
So we need to ask ourselves, ask the question, what is our faith in? In whom do we trust? Faith in crystals to bring healing to your soul is powerless and meaningless. For faith to truly save and transform a person, it has to be in an object that has the power to save and the power to transform someone. The one who trusts in chariots and horses, Psalm 20 says they collapse and they fall because they're trusting in something that can't hold them up. They're trusting in their, their faith is in something they cannot rescue. But the one who trusts in the name of the Lord, he is the one who stands, who stands upright. Well, the story is clear that Rahab is one who's trusting in the name of the Lord. So notice, we're going to look at more detail here. Notice what Rahab's faith is in. It's in four distinct aspects of God. Verse 9, she has faith in the promises of God. She has faith in the promises of God. I know that the Lord has given you this land. How does she know that? Word had gotten out. The promise made to God's people was not hidden from the people in the land. The Canaanites were not ignorant of God. They were just ignoring Him. Instead of heeding the promise of God, like they knew that God had given them this land, but instead of like surrendering it to them, they hated that idea and they resisted it. So their destruction was not because they were ignorant. They were, they, they were suppressing the knowledge of God. In this case, they were suppressing the promises of God, but Rahab did not. She knew the promises and acknowledged the promises. I think she knew them before they arrived, and I'm sure they were clarified to her when the spies got there. So she trusts the promise of God that this land was rightly belonged to these people by God's sovereign decree. And she was willing to trust God, put God before country. Number two, she had faith in the power of God. All right? Or she said, my heart and everyone in this nation's heart is melting. We are all trembling. We are all fearful because of the power of God that has been in this, on display through you. Through your walking through the, through the Red Sea. Through your conquering of the kingdoms, uh, the kings uh, east of the Jordan. Like, we hear the stories of the power of your God. And when we hear the power of your God, we tremble. And not just tremble. The fact that they tremble is also an opportunity to trust. Notice again, Rahab's not the only one who's afraid in this story. It's just everybody's hearts are melting. But it is not fear alone that changes a person. It's fear combined with faith. The whole land was afraid, but only Rahab is one, and perhaps her family, are the one who trusted Nobody is saved by fearing God. A lot of people fear God. They're afraid to go to hell. They're afraid of God. But that is not what saves. Many fear. But it is, we're to take that fear and recognize, I understand who God is. I understand the power of God. And therefore, I ought not to run from Him, but I ought to trust in Him. 
uh, to recognize His authority and recognize His power. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end. It's necessary. But upon fear, we build faith. We don't just tremble before Him. We trust in Him. We treasure Him. Because He's not just powerful, He's also good. Rahab's fear turned to faith. Thirdly, she trusts, she has faith in the person of God. Look at verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It reminds me of what uh, Jonah said a few, week, a few months ago when we looked at Jonah, where he confesses, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. She's able to confess and recognize that there is a true God and that Israel is the one who worships Him. She explicitly acknowledges the God of Israel over all the gods of the people. And in doing so, she's rejecting the gods of her culture. She's trusting in the God who's over creation, the one who's over her, the one who's mightier than all the gods of this world. You see, the world likes to, our culture, I'll just make it more specific, our culture likes to fashion gods. They don't, like, they don't carve them out of stone, but they, they, they invent gods that they can control. They invent gods that give them what they want, put it that way. Which really makes them self-god. Like if, you can, if you can make your god, if you, can, if you can say, I think my god would be this way, I'm, I'm going to make him this way. Well then, he's not the god of the heavens. He's the god who submits to you and your whims. Of course, our, our culture has the ways of saying that my god... And they follow, but my God would never condemn people. My God would never um, accept people just the way they are. And, and I understand what, there can be a sense in which that's true, but the way our culture says it, they're saying that in a way that kind of erases any distinction, any possibility that God would ever say, from, say to someone, depart from me, I never knew you. And they end up making gods that are just cosmic versions of their fallen and sinful selves. And Rahab is ready to reject all the gods that she and her people have created to trust in the true and living God who is above all others. Finally, she has faith in the plan of God. In verse 13, she knows the city is going to be destroyed. And she's, she's, not, she's not fighting that plan. She's not giving her reasons why that shouldn't be the case. She's submitting to God and His plan. And just says, Will you have mercy on me? <clears throat> Will you save my family? And then there's finally this sign of faith. Just briefly, you know, the scarlet cord. Like, hang, hang this out of your window, and if anyone's in your house, they will be saved from the destruction that's coming your way. You can't read that and not think of, think of the, you know, the story of the Passover lamb. Blood on the doorpost. Whoever's in that house is safe. Same thing with Rahab's home here. Um, where that scarlet cord hangs, which is a demonstration of her faith, all are kept safe. 
I mean, the story really is about the mercy of God. That's what chapter 2 is about. A God who is merciful for those who trust in him. Even if they're from the pagan nations. Even the ones among where the judgment is coming upon the land. Anyone in that land who trusts in him will have, have received mercy. Even if it's as this prostitute woman. Joshua 6 goes on to say a little more of the story. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day and became, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So this woman goes on to live a life faithfully with the Lord the rest of her life. If you know the story too, she also becomes one through whom Jesus is born. So this is no insignificant woman in the story of God. She endured the test of faith. And that test of faith came suddenly. She didn't have time to consult anyone about it. Didn't have time to pray about it, you might say. At least in the way we think, well, I'm going to spend a few weeks praying about this decision. In that moment, she had to decide whose side she was on. And she decided based upon the promises of God. She decided based upon the power of God. She decided based upon the person of God and the plan of God. Her, blind, her faith was not just blind faith. She knew why she was making this decision. She knew why she was entrusting herself to God in that moment. Every day we are faced with decisions. Like decisions of faith. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small. Sometimes they have great risk, sometimes they have small risk. And we have to decide, is it Jesus or the world? Is it treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? What are we going to do? How are we going to be ready for that? Someone comes to you and says, you know what? There's a woman who needs a place to stay. Perhaps she's homeless or she's fleeing some situation that's difficult. Would you take her in? Like in that moment when someone presents that opportunity to you, I wouldn't be surprised if many in this room all of a sudden thought of all the possible risks that would bring. Is she dangerous? Is she going to, I don't know her. What's her background? Is she going to leave when it's time to go? What kind of risk is this putting me at? Or in a moment's notice, you're, just, you're sitting at work and, and someone comes along and says, hey, it's, it's, it's Pride Month and we're, we got a cake in the other room and the break room, we're going to celebrate. Come on and join us. Like, Whoa, I, didn't, I, like, I wasn't ready for that invitation. How are you going to respond in the moment? Girls with a boyfriend, the boyfriend says, you know, I really love you. Let's go upstairs. And you just, you walk through all these, these, these scenarios which you weren't planning on that, having to make that decision today. And something springs forward and you have to make a decision. And all of us probably have stories to tell where we didn't do very well in that. 
You really believe the Bible? That's crazy. Like the Jonah part? And you're like, oh, all of a sudden I feel like vulnerable. And we, we all can think of times we probably denied or maybe didn't deny, we just downplayed. It was hard for us to like take a stand. It was hard for us to step out in faith. It was hard to take the risk. The way that we, the, the way to be ready for when those moments come is to have something rooted in us deep at the foundation of who we are. And ultimately what that is is that we find Jesus and his glory to be more, more desirable than anything else in this life. And that when that is so deeply rooted in us that our gut reaction is actually faith. That our gut reaction is yes. Even when it's like, that's scary, but Jesus is more powerful. When I know something about his promises, when, when, I, when, I, when I've trembled at his power, when I recognize who he actually is, that he's the God over the heavens and the earth, when I'm someone who, who rejoices in the plan of God, like that's the pattern of my life. I'm thinking about the promises. I'm, I'm rejoicing in his plan. I'm, I'm resting in who he is. And like that's who I am because I've, I've cultivated a heart like that. I've prayed for God to give me a heart like that. And then we read things like what Paul writes in Philippians. Listen to how he, how he thinks. He says, But whatever I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, like he's counting certain things as dead, as gone, as rubbish, in order to have something to gain Christ. Christ means something to him in such a way that he can look at that and say, rubbish, gain. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes by the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. And he says that I may know him. He wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings. So he looks at the future and says, I know there's sufferings there, and I'm willing to share in them. To become like him in his death, that I may by any means possible attain the resurrection from the dead. How, do, how, how does one live like that? How do we live like that? We become that way when we believe the promises of the gospel. That he gives rest to all that come to him. That he's the resurrection and the life. That to reject him is to embrace death. But to receive him is to receive life. When that promise is etched on my heart, then when my heart gets fearful, it clings to something. Paul wasn't looking back just at the fact that God delivered Israel through the Red Sea. He was looking back at the resurrection of Jesus and saying, my hope is in the fact that he is raised. And I know that he is raised, and in that power, not only do I see the display of God's might, but in that power I know that I can experience the resurrected life. That I can begin to know what it is to live a new life in Christ. 
that my life is not the same as it was. And I have confidence in who God is because of this. When, we've, when we, we have come to the realization that gods of this world are evil, and there's only one true God worth laying my life down for in an act of worship, when that's deep in my heart, I'll be ready. So do you want to be ready when someone comes knocking at your door, when the government says you should should submit to them over Jesus? When choosing Jesus, when walking by faith is going to put your reputation at risk, is going to put your safety, your possessions, your retirement, your relationships. I don't have the strength to do that. But Jesus does. And he tells me that he'll give me the strength to walk by faith. When Jesus is our Savior and our Sovereign, when we can, we can look at the world and we say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything else. When that's what our heart longs for. When we see how good he is, then we will be ready for that test. Because the test is coming. Well, the test has already come. We face them and they'll keep on coming. So I encourage us to swim in the promises of God, to delight in God, to marvel at his power. And if that's the pattern, if that's, if that's the daily pattern that we establish for ourselves, that's, that's how we talk to each other. If that's what we say to each other when we're having a good day and we're having a bad day. If that's how we live today, then when the test comes tomorrow, we'll be ready. We'll be ready to face it. Let's pray. Father, every day there is a test. There are tests of faith every single day. Will we give in to fear? Will we give in to temptation? Will we give in to desires? You are trustworthy. Your promises are true and good. Your power is strong enough to save us and rescue us. Write these things on our heart. Write these promises there so that when that day comes, when that surprise moment comes, we will stand firm, firm in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.